Coming up next on this episode of the Unlock You podcast. Like somebody coming up to me and saying, should we have a pet? And I'm like, I don't know. There's a million factors. Right for you, right? Like, well, should we do this? Like, should we have sex this often? Like, what's the should? There is no one number, but we can give you some averages, which is maybe helpful. And what we found is there's a wide range, all the way from a pretty, actually slightly heartbreaking finding that 23% of married couples are really not engaging in intimacy much. They're actually connecting less than once a month or never. 9% were never. Now those did tend to be older couples, but still that's a pretty heartbreaking finding. You know, this important form of intimacy just isn't happening a lot for a lot of couples. But then there's, it's basically, it was almost like a quarter, a quarter, a quarter, where it was like, you know, almost a quarter were in that like really low end. And then there's another quarter that were kind of in the, you know, once a month to once a week category and another category, you know, people who are once a week to three times a week. And then another, it was, I don't remember, it was 19% that were three times a week or more. Welcome to Unlock You with Dr. Shannon Crawford. And as you may know, I have a huge, amazing amount of respect for Shanti Feldhahn. Uh, she has been a mentor in a season of my life and just, I look up to her a lot. And she did our prior episode on what couples want to know about sex in marriage. So we are back. Her book is finally out. Last time it was kind of a pre-launch. Yeah, exciting. And so now we have it in our hands. And it's called Secrets of Sex and Marriage, Eight Surprises Eight Surprises That Make All the Difference. So Shanti, thank you for being our guest today. I am super excited. I'm after three years of working on this thing. I'm glad it's finally out. <laughs> oh my gosh. Having it in the flesh is unreal. I'm so yeah, happy for totally you. Is. Yes. And we will be interviewing Dr. Michael Seitzma, your co-author on this project. But now that it's out, what's the feedback you're getting? What are... What are the eight things that people are wanting to know? What is the feedback you're getting from couples on sex and all the fun things? Yeah. So yeah, we need an update since we already <laughs> talked a little bit about this. Your your listeners got a sneak peek earlier. Um, mm -hmm. So it has been fascinating to watch the response to this mm -hmm. uh, because just for those who didn't hear that earlier episode, you know, the whole point behind what I feel like my ministry is called to do, what I'm called to do, is to use my kind of research background, my analytical background, in order to dig out what are the little things that are going to make the biggest difference, Yeah. right? Like in any area of your life. And so I still can't quite believe I tackled this topic. <laughs> Uh, but we had done the money topic before and, you know, sex and money are the two big issues in marriage yeah. and relationships. So, um, so we went ahead and did this and, and in part the reception, the reception has been really wonderful um, because we did co-author this with Dr. Seitzma. And one of the things we had recognized in tackling this topic um, is that if we got anything wrong, even just like a little bit wrong, mm -hmm. like it could do damage yeah. on this area of people's lives yeah. and marriages. And unfortunately, there's a lot of information out there that is mythology around this topic. And that's one of the reasons yeah. why sometimes there's some heartache. 
And so we knew we had to be really, really accurate. And so that's the reason we recruited him to work with us on this, because he is one of the most renowned sex therapists in the country and has a research background himself. And um, so I think that's the reason the reception for the book has been really overwhelming. Uh, oh, my so gosh. So how did you... Yeah. So this is not just opinion or somebody's story and their right. advice. This is based on empirical data research, which we love as psychologists over here. Yes, um, yes. I knew you so, do. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So how did you gather your sample? How did you find the people to then gather the data that are the eight secrets? Yeah. So the way that we do all of our research, actually, every one of our studies over the years has had roughly the same pattern. Um, which is that we have a qualitative phase and then a quantitative phase. And so the qualitative phase, we'll talk to anybody, right? Like that does not need to be a rigorous sample. That is just, it can, it can literally be whoever's trapped next to me on the airplane for two hours. <laughs> I feel really and just bad. for those who don't know those research terms, qualitative means conversation. You're getting yes. feeling, impression, <laughs> conversation. Quantitative means you're doing the data, the numbers, the testing and analyzing. Exactly. It. Keep going. And so we would, we just spent a long time doing um, focus groups and interviews. And on this topic, we actually had to do the kind of the random anonymous interviews a little bit differently because, you know, on this topic, I can't like stop the person in the airport. That's your sex life. Way. Yeah. <laughs> it's like we would have needed a budget item for bail money, but <laughs> So what Jeff and I actually did, my husband Jeff and I, we we did we did all the research, the three of us together. Oh, cool. Um, and what Jeff and I did, which was really fascinating, was we did all the anonymous interviews with people on Zoom, uh -huh. with their cameras blacked out, uh -huh. and so our camera was on, so they could see us and have a conversation, but we couldn't see them, and they picked a fake name, and okay. so we had you know Farm Boy and Buttercup. <laughs> And Wanda Envision, right? Like it was whatever they wanted to call themselves and it allowed them to be really, really open because, mm. you know, we had no idea who they were. And so we did that whole phase of the research. And then in answer to your specific question about the surveys, um, every one of our studies, including this one, we hire a, a survey company that has a really robust, high quality, it's called a panel. And so it's, uh, you know, the, the companies that we used, because we did two of these nationally representative surveys for this project, the companies that we used um, are ones that we have known from previous experience and in the market as very, very well respected mm -hmm. as they have high quality uh, panels so that you know, if someone says they're a 44-year-old African-American man that lives in Los Angeles, you know they're a 44-year-old African-American man that lives in yeah. Los Angeles and not like a 17-year-old girl that's taken the mm -hmm. survey for kicks, right? And so that's why they're so expensive. And so then that's how we did the quantitative part of this, mm -hmm. of these surveys to try to dig out, all right? We've heard this in focus groups 127 times. Is this really true? Yeah. Exactly. So that's the way we did the research. 
I love it. Okay. So now you're getting feedback. The book is out secrets of sex and marriage, eight yeah. surprises that make all the difference. Yeah. So what are the ones that are gaining traction that maybe even are surprising you that you're like, wow, people are really identifying with this. Well, you know, the interesting part for me is that everything surprised me <laughs> and nothing surprised Dr. Mike. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because as a sex therapist, he's heard it all. Um, and so for me, I spent the whole time going, whoa, whoa. And and so the interesting, one of the most, um, I think, foundational starting points that I've been really, I've really been pleased to see that it helped people mm -hmm. is actually one of the most simple um, because, you know, it's not rocket science for people to know that this area of life can cause some heartaches, Yeah. right? And some... Uh, complications and feelings of disappointment mm -hmm. or pressure or whatever. Yeah, being unwanted. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And 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 yet one of the most simple pain points is the feeling that couples have that they're the only ones dealing with this issue yeah. or that issue. And it's really interesting if you think about it this is the one area of life and marriage where we have zero grid for what is going on out there because this is like the one area where we don't even talk to our closest friends mm -hmm. about it right like people don't compare notes <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in most circles <laughs> in most circles i mean you might have like little conversations here and there but you don't compare notes. And so when you're dealing with something, you feel really alone. Mm. And so one of the chapters, and our editor insisted we call it this, is what are married couples up to in the bedroom? <laughs> and I'm like, okay, that's like clickbait. <laughs> clickbait <laughs> chapter title. He's like, but that's what people want to know because yeah. they don't feel suddenly, they don't feel alone. It's like, oh my gosh, like everybody deals with these you know, various issues. And mm -hmm. so that it, it was really, it was really sweet to see that indeed, that's the simplest and one of the most important things that people gravitated towards. Yeah. And so what's, I know you can't give us the whole book, but what's oh, something no, no. from that section that you think people listening would be like, oh my gosh. Well, you know, people always ask, you know, what's the average? <laughs> You know, when people are trying to get how often should we have sex? And, you know, um, Dr. Mike, our co-author, has always said on under no circumstances are we ever to answer that question mm -hmm. <laughs> because there's no should. Right. Yeah. Like it totally okay. depends. That's like, yeah. like somebody coming up to me and saying, should we have a pet? And I'm like, I don't know. There's a million factors. Right for you, right? And it's like, well, should we do this? Like, should we have sex this often? Like, what's the, what's the should? There is no one, you know, kind of number, but we can give you some averages, mm -hmm. um, which is maybe helpful. And what we found is there's a wide range all the way from a pretty, actually slightly heartbreaking finding that 23% of married couples are really not engaging in intimacy much, mm -hmm. um, that, that they're actually connecting less than once a month or never. 9% wow. were never. 
Wow. Now those did tend to be older couples, but still, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's, that's a pretty heartbreaking finding, yeah. um, that, that, you know, this important form of intimacy just isn't happening a lot for a lot of couples, but then there's, it's basically, it was almost like a quarter, a quarter, a quarter, where it was like, you know, yeah. almost a quarter were in that like really low end. And then there's another quarter that were kind of in the you know, once a month to once a week category and another category, you know, people who are once a week to three times a week. And then another, it was, I don't remember, it was 19% that were, you know, three times a week or more. Um, and, you know, all the way up to daily, there were, I think, 4% of the population was daily or more <laughs> small, but they're there. Um, and And we found that the average, if you set aside the people who just aren't connecting much mm-hmm. or at all, and you deal with the people who are, the average is one and a third times per week. Mm. And, um, you know, people always count, Jeff and I do marriage events, and somebody mm-hmm. came up to us after a marriage event recently when I said that, they're like, one and a third. What does that mean? <laughs> like, you stop a third of the way through? What does that mean? <laughs> We're like, no, that just means four times every three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> But it's actually helpful, as silly as it sounds, it's actually mm-hmm. really kind of helpful for people to yeah, normalize, to know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so just in I case you were curious. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And so do you guys cover orgasm? Do you cover We do. We do. Okay. You, see, you have no problem using the language. I spent like two years blushing as oh, my. Yeah. Dr. Mike would be talking about this and he would love using like anatomically correct terms and watching me and Jeff like just squirm. But, but yes, we you can't do. be trained in marriage therapy without having to be really comfortable with all the terms. Yes, so really comfortable <laughs> with those terms. You are way more comfortable than I am. But yes, we did. We actually found something to me that was really, really encouraging, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, which is that people, everybody, and now this was not 100%, but it was a very high number. I can't remember what it was, like in the 80% range. People are actually, most spouses are actually more concerned about their spouse's pleasure than their own. I love that. Isn't that great? Yeah. yeah. Like both men and women were actually more like, I want to make sure that my spouse, you know, has that experience and it doesn't always work that way because there's all sorts of issues um you know there is for for women uh, for most men i mean most men there's no issues there like most men have that experience most and and there's plenty of women that do but there's also plenty of women that don't right right that that would love that um, but it just doesn't work out that way. Um, maybe there's pain. There's a high, relatively high level of sexual pain mm-hmm. that's getting in the way. And we spend some time in the book saying, please, like, don't just push through the pain, get yes. the help. Yeah. Um, so, cause there are ways to address these things um, that Dr. Mike talks about a little bit more um, that obviously than I could, cause that's his expertise. 
I love it. That's so valuable. So for couples who are experiencing shame about, yeah. you know, I want to make my partner happy and then they're not able to have orgasm on male or female side. Yeah. And I've worked on both sides where the husband is not able to complete or the wife is struggling yeah. with pain or shame or just feeling frigid. Whatever. Um, yeah. So is there any suggestions you guys would give to help people who might be listening to this and feeling like they're the outlier, that they want to please their partner, and yet it's hard not to take it personal, even though there may be a physiological yeah. element? Well, the the one of the things that we've seen, actually, this goes back into multiple other research projects, mm -hmm. um, but obviously, especially in this one, is that it is very easy to take things personally that really a have nothing to do with us right um and b to the degree that we take it personally we can get tense we can get anxious mm -hmm. um we can withdraw right like we can um kind of put it on us like i'm not desirable enough i'm yes. not good enough mm -hmm. and all of those things actually create more of the problem right right and and so and nobody wants that and so actually, one of the things that uh, we recommend for people who are in that category, or really and dealing with any other issue in their intimate life, is if it is something like that, that is specific, mm -hmm. and relatively narrow, like an orgasm issue, sexual pain, etc, like, mm -hmm. you know, pornography, blah, blah, blah. Like mm -hmm. a lot of people have one or more of these buckets of issues. Mm -hmm. We actually have some resources on the website Great. that people can actually go and get more help. And some of it is as simple as, okay, read this article because this will actually explain a few things you just didn't know. Mm -hmm. And then if that doesn't help, then get more help. And here's some referral resources for Great. you. Yes. So we recommend that to people. So share your website if in case somebody's listening. It's actually the same as the book title. It's secretsofsexandmarriage.com. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's very easy. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> Um, because I think a lot of times one things stay in secret. So then we never bring yeah. it in the light and then get the help that it's like, we live in this, you know, secret place of pain instead of realizing there's tons of resources. I mean, there's research oh, yeah. there's therapists, there's doctors, there's medical procedures, there's all kinds of things. Um, and I love the therapy side of that. Obviously I'm biased, um, <laughs> but being able to work on just that mental narrative, that script that early on in a relationship, many times it's easy and it's light because there's no pressure, performance, anxiety, feel like I'm disappointing you. But the research says two and a half to five years into a relationship, our attachment issues are starting to surface. And so you're not just dealing with trying to help your partner have an orgasm. You're now dealing with the unconscious parts of you that are feeling like, am I adequate? Am I right. enough? Am I beautiful? Right. Am I still attractive to you? Are you looking at someone else? So all these heart questions are being asked. And to your point earlier, now there's placed all this pressure. And so yeah. I'm not truly able to be fully present. And so then that self-doubt, self-criticism, is it me? Are you not attracted to me? Then it's going to make the problem much worse rather yeah. than addressing it, resolve those heart questions. And now we can enjoy each other just at that pleasure level instead of all the other noise that's going on. 
Yep, that is a great way of summarizing it because that is exactly what happens. And the thing that was very encouraging for me, you know, not being a sex therapist and not really having much of a grid when we started for how common are these issues? How easy are they to address? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was really shocked at the how accessible most of these issues are Mm -hmm. to address without yeah a ton of you know it's not like you're going to spend three months in psychotherapy or Mm -hmm. whatever I mean like truly work but you have to work with a specialist on some of them yes like a sex therapist on some of these specific ones and the if if it's a good sex therapist who's relatively well trained and we have referral resources Mm -hmm. to those people on the website you can there are things literally that you can do with just a couple of consultations mm-hmm. to get you started now you know your issue may be a little bit more complicated but a lot of people i think feel like just starting they're going to have to you know allocate budget for 6 months of whatever and yeah. that it's is not daunting. always the case yeah right Right. Just take that first step and you'd be surprised how the momentum grows. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And it just keeps popping in my mind for anyone that's listening and that you're feeling shame. Maybe your body is the one that's really struggling to fully engage or your mind is struggling to fully engage. Sometimes there's somatic memory. So that just means memory that's held by the body. And so your body is actually letting you know, I have some trauma associated with this experience. And now that doesn't always have to be big case trauma, like a major like rape or event or assault, but there may be something that's worth exploring. And actually being present, using mindfulness and engaging your heart and your soul and your body of going, hey, when I'm in that intimate state, when I feel vulnerable, exposed, laying down, someone's on top of me, what is it that my body is experiencing? And if you start free writing, and so just associate, it's like you take your editor brain off and you're not trying to like solve and fix, you're just truly being curious. The inside parts of you want to communicate. And somatic memories are when your body, like whether it's a panic attack or just feeling frozen or shut down or vaginismus, where the vagina starts to kind of like shake and there's tension in that region of the body, your body's trying to communicate something. And our human nature goes, oh, I just don't want to deal with that whack-a-mole, make it stop, instead of being honoring that you're not broken. And it probably is not the person in front of you today, but something probably does need to be addressed. And instead of just willpowering through it to Shanti's point earlier of just like forcing yourself through pain, will just continue to make a classically conditioned association of hating sex, hating intimacy, and always having a headache or needing to do chores instead of being intimate with your partner. Yeah. And one of the things that I was actually, let me address something about the sexual pain that Maybe when you talk to Dr. Mike, you can ask him more about this. Sure. Um, but I'll just set you up for that conversation yeah. because I was stunned actually to find out that the sexual pain world, first of all, it's something mm-hmm. like a third of women, I think it was 31% of women have significant sexual pain at least once every third time. Wow. That's a lot. It's really like, like that's a very high number. Mm-hmm. I think I have those numbers right. It's but it's it's similar to that. It's a pretty high number. Yeah. But I was also pretty surprised to find out that you know we 
I think in the last few years, we have started to associate a lot of that pain with fear, mm-hmm. with vaginismus, et cetera. Yeah. I was stunned to find out that that's actually not the t- most, it, not the biggest reason for pain. And that there's all sorts of issues, yeah. like literally from having like a little infection that's never gone away in this one little area. Um, and you've, you've carried that infection for years and, oh, mm-hmm. like you, <laughs> I need a really targeted antibiotic and it's done. Oh my gosh. <laughs> right? Like, I mean, there are so many of those that when Dr. Mike started sharing some of that with me, I was like, you've got to be kidding. The the sheer amount of pain and heartache that is caused just because we just didn't know. Yeah, absolutely. How, I mean, sexual pain can be pretty complicated yeah. to, to figure out, but there are things that once you actually get it, wow, like mm-hmm. it wasn't. <laughs> It wasn't a complicated thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so addressable to your point that there's a million things that we take for granted and think are normal. We just settle and plateau into life. And I love this book because our it's restoring hope of like, one, you're normal. (laughs) There's a bunch of other people based on really empirical research. And two, there is hope and there are resources and there's things you can do about it because intimacy is so important and it is something that we want you to enjoy and not just have to get through. Yep. Exactly. Mm-hmm. There, basically, there's just so much fun, interesting, fascinating stuff that we learn in the research. I'm just really excited for people to dig in and really talk about it together, honestly, because yeah. that makes a big difference. Absolutely. So what's one last thing that you would share with our group today? Oh, gosh, you're going to make me choose. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that I think I talked about last time that I do want to like just emphasize mm-hmm. is so often we have this um, Hollywood kind of idea yeah. around how sex works, where we we assume that it's what we see on the screen, even though we know Hollywood puts people in weird situations, we assume the process is just what happens where you have, you know, one person who looks at the other person and there's the spark of desire Uh and they do something about it. And it was a huge surprise aha moment for me. And then I started to see the numbers to realize that that's actually just one type of desire And there's two primary types of desire and that you could call that maybe initiating desire, the Hollywood idea, receptive desire, which is the second primary type. It's really encouraging for people to know, first of all, that it exists. Mm -hmm. And secondly, the physiology of receptive desire, literally people are working in the reverse order. The, The desire physiology works exactly in reverse where instead of feeling desire and doing something about it, the person usually decides mm. to get engaged sexually without feeling that sense of desire. Wow, that's good. Knowing that as they go along with their spouse, yeah. assuming that it's positive, assuming that, you know, they're getting aroused, and then they start feeling the sense of desire that their spouse may have felt from the very beginning. Yeah. And it is so freeing to not have this pressure where we think if it doesn't 
work the way that I think it's supposed to work, that means someone's broken, mm-hmm. you know, that something's wrong or I'm not, I'm not desirable or I'm frigid, right? Mm-hmm. Like, why is something wrong with me? I don't feel yeah. desire. I'm just making a choice, you know, or and I'm not attracted to my spouse or I'm not attracted wrong to my with spouse. our marriage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And none of that is yeah. often, none of that is true. So that was very encouraging for people to go, oh my goodness. And it's actually just as a, as a data point, mm-hmm. 55% of the population has receptive desire. Wow. So and break that down for us again. So the audience understands the distinction. Yep. So initiating desire, which is where you feel desire and do something about it. Mm-hmm. Receptive desire is where you don't feel desire. You choose to do something about it. You choose to get engaged with your spouse. Mm-hmm. And then you know that the desire will follow. Yeah. That's so good because I think even, you know, the therapist in me can't help it, but if you're listening right now and just be mindful of the thoughts and the interpretation of what you tell yourself based on a circumstance, right? So to her point, am I frigid? Is there something wrong with me? Or am I not attracted to my spouse? Did I marry the wrong person? Is there something wrong with our marriage? Yeah. All of those narratives are creating neurochemical reactions that will make the whole situation much worse. But if instead, if you take those thoughts captive and you start realizing our anatomy, our physiology, our psychology, everything is just different and you'll go through ebbs and flows. You'll go through seasons in your marriage and that's okay. And so we want to write the truth and now start confessing and believing the truth that I am attracted to my spouse and my spouse is attracted to me, that our level of initial desire doesn't have to be high for us to be in love. Sometimes you're tired, you're busy, you've been taking care of kids and work and juggling a million things. (laughs) And, And those are not the hormones and the chemicals and pheromones that are up and ready at that moment. That is not something wrong with your marriage. That's just a life work balance thing. And so we need to be very mindful of taking those thoughts captive and then redirecting the story you tell yourself about your marriage and the story you tell your partner about your marriage, continuing to say, you're just not attracted to me. You just don't love me. And like, almost like force it down their throat. That's not helpful. Right. But if I can take responsibility for my thoughts, my narrative that I tell myself and the narrative and interpretation I'm telling my spouse, you'll create a dynamic that fosters that, uh, that ease of connection that wants to come versus now creating a stalemate and a power struggle, or just like, I don't want to play in that sandbox anymore because it's so demoralizing to have somebody constantly beating me over the head for not having more initiating desire or whatever the scenario Or, or you beating yourself over the head that you're not desirable. Right. You know, it's, it's interesting. One of early, early on in the research project, you know, the first probably three or four months, we actually put out a simple informal survey just to our followers. This wasn't, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the national surveys, but we basically just said, if you could ask a sex therapist one question about anything with regards to your intimate life and your marriage, what would it be? You know, because I kind of just wanted to know what was at the top of people's yeah. mind. Yeah. The top answer by far, the top like cry of the heart mm. was basically, why isn't my spouse interested? Mm. And that's a painful feeling. Like when you feel like your spouse isn't interested. Yeah. And this one topic that we've just been talking about mm. helps set people free. 
because the reality is they are interested, but it's not what you think is interested because you've thought there's just this one type of desire. Right. And instead, no, they probably are interested. It's just activated completely differently. Mm-hmm. And so you can take your kind of your ego out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, we know whether you're the husband or the wife, because we found that I think it was something yep. like 24% of women were higher desire mm-hmm. in their marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of those were that initiating desire, not all, but most. And so, you know, recognizing that could be either the husband or the wife. Yeah. And and to tell yourself, oh, my goodness, they are interested. Yeah. It just is activated differently. I love that. And that gives so much hope. So yeah. again, give us the website. How do we get this book? Sure. It's secretsofsexandmarriage.com is the website, as that is also the book title. <laughs> Perfect. I love it. And then there's also resources, like you said, for articles and sex therapists. And I would obviously throw in all kinds of good marriage therapy can help in the bedroom as well. There you go. Because it helps with the heart questions. All right. Well, thank you for your time. And we will follow up with our Dr. Michael and hear the rest of the story from the sex therapist specialist. Thank you, Shanti. We love you guys. And we'll see you for the next episode. Bye.